Hello and welcome to The Hardy Brain, the show that takes athletic, introverted entrepreneurs and leaders and transforms them into ironclad brain performers. I'm your host, Dr. David Hardy, and today on our show, we've got another amazing guest. He is a culture futurist, creative strategist, social brain capital builder, and an artist and poet. Welcome to the show, Theo Edmonds. How are you doing there? I'm well. It's great to be with you, Dave. Great. Yeah, for everyone tuning in, I'm going to make a big claim that you will walk away with an entirely different view on culture, the arts, science, and business, and how they're interconnected. Theo is an absolute genius on this subject matter, and I am just interested on your thoughts and seeing where this conversation goes. Let's dive uh, in. When you're born ready, you don't got to get ready. <laughs> I love that. When you're born ready, you don't have to get ready. <laughs> so Theo, um, some people, when we kind of bring up these topics on arts, culture, and business, uh, uh, a lot of people are maybe a little jaded about it that Oh, it's an academic or it's another HR person talking about, oh, how do we integrate these things? And well, let's pull out the glitter markers and the colored paper and make a vision board and then put it aside. But you just take this to an entirely different level, like to give perspective to everybody. Uh, you were just part of a UN global conference on this. and we met at the Brain Capital Innovation Summit. Um, so you're really striving forward in how these subjects are connected and how it can build better societies and social networks and improve the brain. What is your unique perspective on, once again, arts, culture, business, and science and the interconnectedness of them? Yeah, that's a question I get asked a lot. So maybe the a good place to for us to start would be to talk about what a culture futurist is. Yes. Um, and I, I've thought a lot about this over the years. And um, the best definition I have for you today is that uh, I spend a lot of time trying to locate the infinite in the present. And what I mean by that is not trying to predict the future or, or uh but really kind of looking at what are the what is the evidence from different areas of data that could range from uh, creative economy to quantum physics to economics. How do we stack those kinds of data on top of each other? And then where's the thread that if you if you were able to pull on it, it kind of brings all of these different areas more closely together. And so over the course of my life, I've perfected uh, being able to find those threads and, and understand how to create a question that pulls on them, brings them together. And the infinite, <clears throat> while some people may hear, you know, philosophical mumbo jumbo in, in that, I don't think it's, it's that foreign to us at all. And I go back to <clears throat> about two years ago, I was at the, um, Denver Chamber of Commerce annual meeting. So it's a big ballroom full of, you know, a thousand corporate executives in Denver and, and the new chair of the board at the time 
was uh, was a guy named George Sparks, and George is uh, a phenomenal human being, and he is an MIT grad, and he's the CEO of the Nature and Science Museum here in Denver, and also the chair for the Chamber of Commerce. So in his talk, George talks about quite a lot of things, but um, one of the things that he said in that, that I, that I was watching the, the, the faces of the corporate leaders, and I'm paraphrasing just a bit here, but George basically told them this, you know, he's a scientist CEO type. He said, look, perhaps we are making things too hard for ourselves because everything that we know as a company, as a city, as a nation, every human experience has ever been created through a war or through um, uh, an education, all comes from just two things. It is created, those things are created from what we have pulled from the earth and human imagination. Okay. Created all of those things and both of those things are stardust. (laughs) That is their origin story. And so when we think about these James Webb space telescope images that are coming back through, I don't know if you've been, been paying attention to them. Phenomenal. And it is the only time in the last four years that I can think of when a new image comes back from the space telescope and finds its way for the first time across our social media feeds. You almost feel this collective shoulders (laughs) letting down. And for just a nanosecond and you know it's it's brief because social media has got its own kind of way of working that we stop trying to just for a moment get other people to understand what we want them to hear and what we want them to think and we just do this collective kind of whoa <laughs> you know as those things come across and so what taking thinking about george and how he was talking to these corporate, all the corporate leaders of Denver and these images, all of these things are connected and we, we know that they are. And, and I've thought a lot about why it is that we maybe kind of enter into kind of a, um, a Keanu Reeves moment. <laughs> and I mean, in all of his movies, can he, whoa, he can he use this to, he uses it to mean delight. He uses it to mean disgust, surprise. Uh, if you, uh, really want to go down a, a rabbit hole, Google Keanu Reeves, whoa, he says it in every single one of his movies. And it means at least 60 different things that uh, some supposed to probably be way too much time in their hands have looked at. But, but when we do this kind of, kind of, whoa, I think it is very similar to what psychologists call the hypnagogic state. And that is kind of when you're, when you're waking from, from sleeping and from dreaming and you know you're not asleep anymore, but you're not yet fully awake. There's just a, a transition period in there. And, and we all have them and we all know what this feeling is like. And in those moments, there's, a, uh, there's an experience of, of loss from the dream and that we're waking again. And there's also an a, a experience of anticipation that we're waking again. So right. in, it's kind of like melancholy almost is, is kind of maybe an emotion that it might resemble a little bit. And I think when these images come back from the James Webb Space Telescope, we sense that we have become disconnected from something 
And yet we don't have the language. We don't have the words. We don't have the ability to kind of hover and then sit in that uh, space too long to figure out what it's about. And the reason I also believe kind of coming back to entrepreneurs and, and corporations is because there's something called creative tension that comes out of um, yeah, your your listeners maybe maybe remember uh, Peter Sengay, the fifth discipline uh, in those books, creative tension. It comes whenever you're trying to solve something. There's going to be this moment, and it doesn't matter if you're if you're if you're trying to solve a scientific hypothesis, if you're trying to solve a creative problem that puts uh, a new Broadway play on stage, or if you're trying to solve for a new startup company from a scientific standpoint, a creativity mechanism standpoint. Those are all the the same thing is happening in all those situations. The converging goal direction is different, and. What happens, I think, with with corporate spaces when we when we have creative tension that arises, we have spent the last um, quarter of a century telling people that we we want them to identify and play to their strengths, and we want friction free organizations. Right. And, right. And so, as it kind of feels like everybody gets a trophy a little bit, kind of kind of an approach to to. To innovation, but the, the challenge is when we are deeply trying to solve something like a grand challenge, global warming. Creative tension is going to be there because that's a transdisciplinary problem, and we we have if we're all trained to speak a specific language, we miss each other in conversation. What you see with your eyes is not always what you're looking at. We all our lived experiences. We know. Uh, determine a lot of that. And so when we solve for these grand challenges, that creative tension occurs because we're putting these transdisciplinary teams together. We've played to our strengths. We've said friction-free organizations. We don't know how to manage that. Our muscles, our, our, our business muscles, our innovation muscles have atrophied around being able to have the skills and abilities and competencies to sit in that creative tension long enough to get to a better problem construction, which is also part of the creative endeavor. And we reward in the U.S. especially, we reward solutions, not people who are bringing good problem construction to the table. Right. So I'm going to throw out a massive uh, creativity uh, dilemma here. And that is how do we improve our social condition mental health and brain capital for a lot of this and from what you're saying i see it as being an issue of society is a zoom out approach look at Mm -hmm. everything global issues and that draws up so much emotion but then when it's zoom in it doesn't calculate to that zoom out approach and vice versa that really we can take any issue right now, whether it's global warming or whatever else, economic ones. And yeah, we know there needs to be massive global things changed. But at an individual level, that means a lot of sacrifices and people are defensive against that. Collectively, it could be the wrong point of view. So this zoom out, zoom in and tension that way. Yeah. And you threw out a great example before when we were talking about 
the social brain versus the individual genius brain. I'm going to throw that at you and watch you paint another amazing picture for us here. How do we know who Albert Einstein was? How do we know who Picasso was? Works they've already done. And am I kind of on the right line? Yeah, there, there's, you know, I mean, I live in the world of, of both ands, not either ors. That, that's, we could go that direction. <laughs> so for you and I to know who those people even are, their ideas, while it might have been kind of a, a confluence of, of kind of a unique set of their own lived experiences and the skills that their lived experience caused them to cultivate this way rather than that way, we would not know who those people are if their ideas did not go out and get put into some type of social structure. So this idea of the lone genius, I think, is probably one of the most pervasive challenges we have in innovation today. Because I, I would put it to you that genius is the, the origin of the etymology of the word genius is the protective spirit of a person or a place. And the protective spirit of a person or a place, if you go into public health research and sociology, that is a community question. That is a social question. Right. Our brains developed socially for protection. And so all of these things kind of exist in different pieces. But if if we didn't have a social structure of of Picasso's works going on and we didn't have people saying that this is different than what he's doing than what's come before and we didn't have people promoting those answers these ideas these paintings would not be what they are today would, was there a unique point of view of course there was was there talent absolutely but genius is really I believe our ability to stand in creative tension and hold a sense of wonder long enough to experience the benefits that come from not having to, not trying to solve for the tension itself and allow us to get through to the higher order stuff on the other side of it. Cause we don't like tension. We do no. not like to We And so I think within all these cases, we start solving for the tension rather than solving for the problem that we started with just to get it to go away. And when we do that, we kind of look for whatever process is available to us that can help us start solving for the tension. And then we get kind of to the end and we say, well, here, we've got a small solution now that's supposed to hold this big problem. Call the marketing folks and marketing spins it up. My, my favorite one these days is to pick on is Chipotle and, the, uh, and their campaign, Can a Burrito Change the World? <laughs> and what they're really talking about is generative, far regenerative farming and, and, you know, those kinds of things. And I, and I understand it. But if you're, you know, if your kid working your way through through college, putting beans in a burrito, how much of saving the world through um, a burrito are you going to be actually <laughs> able to comprehend and understand as it relates to what you're doing on the day to day? And so the, these concepts of genius concept, even the concept of creative industries, we use these words to separate people and groups out from the general population. Genius right. is over here. 
creative industries, that's over here. But even creative industries, that's usually a group of economists who have taken traditional notions of what is considered creative and they've assigned it to a series of job codes that they're going to call creative. And they look at the historical economic output of those job codes in a particular you know, section of the economy. That's not how creativity works. And so our social brain has to come into play. And so when we think about the social brain, what are we really talking about? We're talking about the collective assets, skills, and abilities of a group to engage in creative cognition. And so if you think about what that looks like it, and from a cognitive standpoint, it looks like creative thinking, analytical thinking. It looks like how well is the group of humans um, designed to augment what they're doing with tech, tech, technology and AI is the one that we talk a lot about today, but that's an old conversation in some ways because the wheel is technology. Anything that changes our human conception of time and distance is a technology and an innovation. And so our creative abilities, especially in creative cognition, we know that memory plays a massive role in the ability to come up with a novel idea and have that novel idea turned into, transformed into value. And we could talk for a year on what each of those words, novel and valuable, mean in different situations. Those are the two basic scientific components of creativity. And so when you're thinking about the implications of memory and the different lived experiences, it makes a lot of sense to me that you want to take advantage of everyone's lived experience in the problem construction as you get into using creativity to solve a group challenge, because that's going to determine the capacity. And there's some uh, fabulous work by uh, Dr. Teresa Mable at Harvard that has looked at whether latent creative capacity becomes enterprise-wide value, in, and Dr. Mable is at Harvard Business School. And so, so with this, how large of a group are you talking about? Because listening to you, this is very intriguing to me that yeah, we can put collective heads together and come up with a creative solution. But when we look at groups of humans, and especially mass of large groups, it's all mob mentality. There's no thinking, there's no creativity, there's destruction, there's force. So how do you kind of differ the two and how do you channel into more collective creativity and what size can that actually be then? So it, destruction's not always a bad thing. Oh, I'd agree. We, we yeah. assign benevolence and malevolence to creativity and, and that it, it depends upon the kind of the goals of the group of humans or the human that is using that that's going to turn it into one thing or another. And so when we, even like with creative destruction, one of the uh, top economists at the Booth School at Chicago uh, had a piece out about a month or so ago that named our inability to engage in creative destruction as probably the biggest thing challenging growth and sustainability of the American economy because we have we've gotten you know so much of our financial and intellectual resources are held tightly within a couple of big groups. So the days when a small startup company comes along 
to challenge that. Now we have, you know, kind of practices, you buy the patent, you buy the technology of the startup company, not necessarily because you want to advance it, but because you want to protect what you already have. And so the more in which we engage, we have a lack of creative destruction. And you can look in nature. A diverse ecosystem is the best kind of ecosystem for growth. You get too homogenous in an ecosystem, big challenges start to happen. So to answer your question about size, that can mean a small group of 10, or it could mean a nation of 100, 300 million. Um, because what we are all susceptible to are the stories that we're telling around it. So the only difference there between a nation and a small group of 10 people or an innovation team in a company is the scale at which we do the storytelling that frames the challenge because we have all these cognitive biases in our brain that kind of tell us that uh, the change, innovation, right? And let's just assume innovation equals change of some kind, whether it's social change or whether it's a commercialization process, that there are these kind of 188 plus cognitive biases that can transform in any number of things. And so what we tend to do is we tend to focus and we say that this change is going to be good for you. And we want to tell people all the features of the new product or service. And we want to tell them all this data from the research world says that it's a good thing for us to do. But here's the problem. That's not what people are listening for. People are listening no. for the story. Exactly. And they have, you know, we all have these cognitive biases that are operating full speed without us even doing having to do anything to make them operate just like the way we breathe without having to think about breathing. And, you know, just kind of four big ones are we know that with any change that that's going to mean the status quo is going to shift. So stick with the status quo, even when we know it's not working. I mean, we, you know, our brains want us to do that and we don't like being changed by other people. That's another bias. So these are stories that we tell. And so the cultural readiness for change to get implemented, whether the group is 10 people or whether it's 300 million in a nation. We don't focus on that cultural readiness to introduce the change into the environment, into the group in a way that sets it up so the innovation can take place. And when we think about the, the kind of the, the creative capacity of the group that I mentioned other, but then you have the social processes that we know that unlock that creativity and transform it into enterprise-wide value. This is why things like hope, trust, belonging, curiosity, sense of awe, hedonic well-being, popularly known as happiness, eudaimonic well-being, which we kind of call purpose, which is purpose. All of these things determine whether or not that group capacity for for creative thinking is going to be unlocked and go on to create new value out in the world. And those processes are something that we kind of assign into social sciences, but they can be measured just as effectively as creativity can be measured. Creativity is more than urgent thinking, right? So you have to put those two things together to get the full picture. Cognitive neuroscience have a piece of it. Industrial organizational behavioral psychologists have also got to be at the table because they're looking at how the function of the group determines that creative output. Because, you know, a group is more than just the sum of the individual brains that come into it. It's the sum of those individual lived experiences that dictate the questions that are asked, the priorities that are that people have, all of those things matter just as much. Abs- yeah, absolutely. And now let's put this into, once again, kind of a framework. Um, one of the hashtags you used, and I love it, is 
creativity infrastructure in infrastructure. So infrastructure can obviously mean groups of people like you mentioned, but bringing groups of people together requires physical infrastructure. And we know, yeah, that can be through a computer and there's limitations and transportation is the big one. And so we're, we're in this hub now too, where it's an unknown mixture in business now and it's evolving, but it also is that zoom out, zoom in approach, public transportation versus cars. Well, we know people don't want to sit in traffic for two hours to get to an office. So do we need this big disruptive force, this mob mentality that we talked about earlier to actually move things forward into making something that does bring more trust and hope to people. How does all of this play with all the mayhem going on in the world right now with disruption? And how do we get to this place where we can be creative and build instead of destroy? Or is that going to come for more destruction? <clears throat> so there was a Three or four a big lot. things connected <laughs> to that question. Uh, I'll try to tease about just a little bit. Let's start with the, the kind of the easier stuff. It, bringing hope, bringing trust to people, you know, trust is something that often gets talked about and a mountain of digital ink has been spilled on it. Right. It's important. What we found in our research with the National Science Foundation starting back in 2018, when we were measuring hope, trust, and belonging as a composite construct, and then using that to predict employee retention, employee well-being months in advance, it's about the triad of those three things that actually proved to be predictive because we all carry those things with us. So if we can measure those things as they exist with a particular specific group of 10 people, 10 million people, it's going to show us where the opportunities are for the nearest term, easiest resource optimization to be able to unlock what's already right there at the surface. So in, in a little bit different than how most people tend to think about those things. It's not about bringing those things to a group. It's about measuring and identifying where those things already exist and then bringing in the right strategies to unlock it in the right way for the right group for the right reason. So it's a little bit, it's a, it's a little bit of a different construct. It's about using quantitative data for those things to understand how to unlock new value within a group construct. So that's a it's a very important kind of nuance that I want to be sure people understand with, with our work. Now, how does all this measurement go with art and creativity though? So it, uh, me measurement is, um, not important for all art. And, but it, if you are say engaged in systems change, social change, you want to know that what you're doing and what you're saying you're doing is working. And that doesn't matter if you're an entrepreneur. It doesn't matter if you're an artist. It doesn't matter if you're, um, you know, in, in population health and, and developing things around there. You've got to have some way of knowing. And 
you know, to give you a, kind of even an example that I follow very closely CERN, the, the Super Collider Program in Switzerland. They've been doing artist, artist residencies there for a decade plus, and they're, they're fascinating because they know that those laws of the, the universe that they're looking at, and we are, you know, kind of going back to George Sparks' comments, we are the made from that same stuff. So how does indigenous spirituality uh, reflect itself in the laws of the universe and vice versa? How does social justice work by two artists in South Chicago? reflect itself in the laws of the universe. And so what I've experienced and is I've been watching and, and, and following CERN's artist program, there's a deep humility that is required coming from both directions, both of these astrophysicists uh, working at CERN and the artists coming in to work with them because it's a dialogue that they're putting in place. And so there, there's, a, there's a level of humility that has to be in place for these transdisciplinary kind of uh, discussions to happen. But going back to what you were asking about a creativity infrastructure, you know, when I talk about that, I'm, I'm really addressing it quite literally as an infrastructure. And in the same way that the, the interstate highway system was both a roadway, but it was also an ethos that stood for mobility and commerce, two of the pillars of American capitalism. You know, and so it was an infrastructure, but it was also it stood for something more than just the roads and the concrete that were being used to create those roads. And so that's the frame I'd like to kind of put put in as a, as a kind of uh, move forward in what this infrastructure might look like. So the infrastructure, uh, creativity infrastructure, we've typically thought about the creative economy, creative industries like that economist version I gave you a while ago. We, we look at historical economic performance of a group that we're saying is the creative industries. And in the same way that GDP is a lagging indicator, that's a pretty good example of where people have spent their time and, and, and maybe some of their effort. It doesn't tell you, especially in a, a world that is going through kind of triple transformation of of environmental, technological, and cultural change at the same time, like we are right now, it doesn't tell you much about why people chose to spend their time in those places or what they might do going forward in the future. And so with that, we have to think about creativity in the same way that I was talking about earlier, that uh, a scientist an entrepreneur and an artist, all from a scientific mechanism standpoint of creativity, are all using creativity. The mechanisms are exactly the same. Their goal direction, the words they use to create it, et cetera, are what is different. So right. instead, of, instead of creativity being something that's separate and apart, if we were able to understand the science of creativity as the language of connection across every industry, what are the skills, the abilities, the competencies that we need to be introducing into a job upskilling future of work training program at scale that every industry is going to need? And so when we're talking about an infrastructure, that's that's kind of what we're talking about. And so within that, the way we think about technology, we, we've gotten to a point where we don't feel encumbered by thinking of tech, tech as a standalone industry, but we're also very comfortable thinking about it as something that's in our lives, in our personal lives. It's the you know part of the innovation value chain in every single industry. We're comfortable with thinking about that. So what I'm saying with this is that we've got, got to think about creativity 
in a bit of the same way. Because what has changed with tech right now is human creativity. And let's stick with generative AI for a moment. Human creativity and generative AI are what we are asking our workforce to begin putting together. And that's only going to ramp up, right? right. And we, 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 we get, I think, sideways in some of these conversations around generative AI. And we start assigning sentience to it in the same way it strikes me as we, we talk about the man and the moon. But if you understand <laughs> how technology works, that it, human creativity and, and generative AI work just fundamentally differently. They're two different things. And so the human creativity part, I think, is going to be the thing that we're going to have to focus more and more. There's a reason that creative thinking rose to number two on the World Economics Forum's Top Future of Work Job Skills Report, a 69% jump before it were, was a year a year or two ago. Okay. Creative, thinking, creative thinking has become an important thing. Analytical thinking, the number one job skill on the World Economic Forum's Future of Work Report, is analytical thinking, creative thinking is number two. Those are sister sister skill sets. And most people don't realize they're sister skill sets. Rounding out the top five are self-awareness, resilience, and curiosity. Taking in total what we've got in the top five future of work, job skills that every company everywhere across the globe must have. For the future of work, we've got logic and emotion. Where do, have we seen this before? Enlightenment gave way to romanticism. Logic and emotion. We have typically thought about creativity being more associated with kind of romantic romanticism and through the years the way the romantic poets get talked about there's a little notion of storytelling around uh, mental illness that comes in there and the stories we tell about the poets you know and so forth and so there's vestiges of that that are still present because there is a false construct in corporate leadership and leaders of entrepreneurial ecosystems that if we introduce that creativity piece we're not sure how to control that. So let's default back to the analytical piece, the logic that is step by step, because it seems a lot more sure to us than that creativity piece does. And we don't even necessarily know why. Despite creative creative thinking being the number two skill set on the World Economic Forum, top uh, skills report, there's no global measure that tells us None. that we're doing it. It doesn't exist. There are pieces of how creativity is measured in schools or how it's measured with kids. It's mostly diversive thinking that we're often talking about. There's an alternative uses uh, thing. There's large language models, which is making it really interesting now because there's some advances that are there. So when we're thinking about all of this, I think it's, it's incumbent upon us if we're talking about infrastructure connected to the skills that, that one of the leading organizations in the world saying everybody's going to have. I think we need to know how to measure if those things are happening or not, where they're happening, and what does the research tell us is the most efficient way to upskill those things where we see that there is a lack in the system. That's what an infrastructure does. And so this is about bringing precision and bringing measurement to something that others in the business community 
have said that our economic systems depend upon. Right. Now you've mentioned creativity and logic and or emotion and logic. And uh, my mind is, and the poets, and my mind started going into the three rhetoric categories. So <laughs> pathos, logos, and the third one being ethos. So logic, emotion, and ethics. And where does the ethics tie into this too? Um, it doesn't seem like it's on the board with this. And there has been kind of a breakdown in trust and governance as well and in the leaders out there. So how is this interwoven and when do we see that make a return as well? There's three things that I would put on the table as to further complicate the question rather than answer the question. <laughs> right. <laughs> Number one, I used to teach public health law and ethics. Um, at the University of Louisville. And these are the oldest conversations right around. And I think we can I think that we can use them to reflect on our current present experience to help us navigate to possibilities and understand what possibilities, may be ahead by choosing, making different choices. I think it's very useful there. Ethics is also perhaps the most important conversation that everyone is ticking the box off of as it relates to AI. So they don't have to really engage in what those answers may actually mean. Yeah, um, I could put it out there and then let's make decisions after the fact. <laughs> and, you know, I think so. So I, I think with any problem construction, uh, is ethics a problem? Is it a solution? We, we don't have it well defined. We just we have it as a thing that we talk about in relation to. In a in a ideal world, we know our, our bicameral government with three branches should be able to kind of keep the ethics thing modulated for our society. We'll, we'll see how that works out in the coming years. Right. But then the, but then the, but then the third thing, besides it being an old dialogue that has been around always in human history, besides it being a thing that we talk about without really doing that much about, because in some ways, it counters the story of capitalism. We don't like being told what to do. Right. Yeah. Uh, which implicates, you know, the brain again. The third, the, third thing, the third thing with ethics, in some ways, I think it requires a, an agreed upon convergent goal direction in order to navigate toward the moral, ethical, recognizing those two things are slightly different, choice, right? I'm hard pressed to see where we ha have that convergent agreed upon goal direction in our society right now, except for perhaps there is an artificial convergent goal direction called profit <laughs> that exists in the business world that we are measuring. It doesn't matter what sector, it doesn't matter what kind of project. 
we are measuring the return on investment of all things we're doing in that model. And I'm not suggesting that's how we should be doing. It. I'm just acknowledging that there is a convergent agreed upon goal direction in business that doesn't necessarily exist in other parts of of our of the American enterprise in in such a an objective kind of way. Right. And and so with the work that we're doing with creativity infrastructure, all of our pilots that we call wondervation pilots, so introducing a sense of wonder into uh, the mix, combining it with natural innovation goals, we're going to be running a series of pilots that test out the creativity measures I talked about a while ago, along with the social well-being measures I talked about, which collectively our social brain capital we introduce those, we measure the group, the innovation team that's working on the project. Then we combine artists working with neuroscientists to de design an intervention to see if we can't improve the innovation ROI that's already being measured objectively by the company by using a different approach that combines the creativity, the social well-being processes, cognitive, behavioral, social brain science combined with the arts and introducing that into innovation teams that are existing, working on strategic priorities in companies as a force multiplier. And that gives us a new set of metrics, but it also gives us that objective convergent goal direction that, um, that it doesn't, that's hard, that I'm hard pressed to find in, in any other place right now uh, in American society. And when that we think about. Absolutely amazing stuff. When and how do people find out more information about that? Um, they can go to imaginatoracademy.com. And that there is a, a platform that we'll be using for the foreseeable future as we roll out Creativity America. And it's a, a collaboration um, between the Brain Capital Alliance and a number of research universities and some of the top cognitive neuroscientists and some of the top industrial organizational behavioral psychologists uh, in the country. And that's where we'll be housing for the, for the first year or so uh, as the program Creativity America rolls out uh, to build this, begin building this intentional creativity infrastructure. That's the platform we'll be using. Um, also, they can follow me uh, on LinkedIn. That is our primary posting platform. Um, because I just, I love the business arts science plat integration uh, of that particular social media platform. It exists probably more there than any other uh, social media place that, I, that I've seen. And, you know, thinking about how we build creative cultures, that creative destruction I talked about has got to be part of it navigating and holding creative tension to get to the more transformational rather than transactional incremental innovation projects, uh, upskilling, creative thinking, and then getting all of that in line with producing creative growth. That's the, the goal of uh, this 10-year project. And that's how we're thinking about it, as a 10-year horizon project to, to move out standardizing the metrics for creativity, social well-being, social brain capital across the across the entire U.S. These pilots and companies and cities also with their innovation districts. And then the third leg of the stool is a national storytelling uh, initiative that helps to socialize and uses the power of storytelling uh, to socialize and convey knowledge as well as to harness knowledge and get that feedback loop going from the broadest swath of society possible. Not everybody, you know, there's a lot of people that have 
brilliant ideas that don't have a PhD. They shouldn't have to have a PhD for their ideas to find their way into I our I love that point because that was going to be my, my final takeaway question and message from you is, yeah, not everybody's an IT whiz. Not everyone's in a university setting or has high leadership status. What is your advice for them to get their creative messages out? Um, you mentioned the Chipotle employee just putting beans in the burrito, but being part of something and sharing their creativity. Uh, how is that possible for people who feel that their voice isn't heard or that they just don't know where to go to and be part of this conversation or, or to share their little little piece of something bigger in the collective. Uh, what should they do and, uh, and what are your advices and places they can go to, to really help out this, this momentum that could be out there? Yeah, I wish I had a better answer for you than exists today. That's part of why Creativity America is being launched. The way I the way I explain it is we need kind of that the way Starbucks <laughs> became a, a third space for a lot of things to happen. I, you know, I've looked around over the last decade or so. What is that intellectual third space that exists in our world? And um, we we've coming out of an industrial economy. We have so siloed um, everyone. Really- as belonging, you belong to this group, you belong to this group, even the way we, you know, we want students to choose their majors at 19 years old and choose the thing you're going to be for the rest of your life. Because right. we all know that 19, of course, you know, you know the answer to that. So what, what I would say is this to remember that creativity is not designated for one group of people. It is something we all have within us. There's different levels of creativity uh, that we could talk for two years about the different levels of it, but we all have creativity that we're using every single day of our lives. If we can identify and knowledge and acknowledge where we are being creative in our own lives and just be aware of all of the things that we are using in that process, we will start to see ourselves perhaps more as creative uh, um, beings than we, most of us currently do. Because we think, oh, I'm not creative. You know, the teacher told me in, in high school that art class that I couldn't draw, so I'm not creative. That's just not true. We, we've told ourselves a lot of false stories. So let's start with unpacking and telling different stories about the usefulness of creativity and how people are already doing it. The best place for you to start with something new is to identify where you're already doing it, because that's going to give you your baseline to know where you're going from. And I think just that awareness, that sense of wonder, looking up at the sky every now and then and and letting yourself experience awe being curious about something you don't know anything about and doing a little elbow work, uh, elbow grease work to, to dig into that and, and scratch that curiosity itch. When you put that, those two experiences together, awe and curiosity, and you build something that is interesting for you, I think that is the best place to start. I love it. And once again, to find out more about Creative America, 
and yourself, what are the links and where should people go? Imaginator Academy, I-M-A-G-I-N-A-T-O-R academy.com. And you can also look up theoedmonds.com. It's T-H-E-O-E-D-M-O-N-D-S.com. Nice. I love it. And thank you for all your input and being a driver behind this. As you mentioned, it is difficult to, to find your creative voice. And I love the work you're doing and look forward to so many more conversations with yourself and, uh, and being part of a, a creative future. And, Thanks so much, Dave. Oh, absolutely. And for everyone tuning in, tune into the next episode of The Hardy Brain, the show that takes athletic, introverted entrepreneurs and leaders and transforms them into ironclad brain performers. Thank you. Take care. I got to do 